So the following was my first ever teaching I did on staff with the School of Biblical Studies at YWAM Kona in March 2019. I taught Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, and the last book my students would study before entering the New Testament and meeting Jesus again for the first time after spending six months in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi, while only four brief chapters, engages with disappointment, disillusionment, and apathy, and faithlessness. The people that the book was written to, in the face of the harsh reality of life, had stopped asking where God was and decided to push Him into the corners of their minds marked irrelevant and unhelpful. Through the book of Malachi, God challenges people to reconsider their disinterest and disillusionment with God and to bring Him their anger, their hurt, and their disappointment and to allow Him to show them the reality of who He is and who He will always be. The lecture itself is about three hours long, but cutting out group discussion time and breaks, I'm going to divide it into three podcasts and as in total about two hours of listening time. The first podcast will cover the historical background and mindset of the people that Malachi was spoken to. The second podcast will cover the first half of the book, and the third podcast will cover the final half of the book. So let's dive in for today. When I, when I went through the Old Testament, and I guess probably you guys have had the same experience, you go through it and you start to realize just how terrible people are, that we, we, we keep on falling away from God, that we get all of these revelations of who God is. We see the seas split, you know, we walk through, we walked through the seas splitting with Israel. We see them, uh, the, the promised land get taken ahead of them. And yet still, generation after generation, they fall into sin again and again and again. And then we get to this book of Malachi. And when I read it, um, it's, I, I just realized nothing changes. Nothing is new under the sun. That every single generation, we still struggle with sin. And we are still so faithless. And the story of the Bible you guys have seen is the story of a faithful God with a faithless people. So what we're going to talk about today is faithlessness. That's kind of the main thing that we're going to go over. Um, there's, there's so many other themes, um, and I'm going to hopefully, God willing, bring other themes into this too. Uh, but the main thing I want to understand is why are we faithless? I mean, I know, I know technically, technically it's just, you know, it's our, it's our sin, right? It's, our, it's, our, it's the condition of our hearts. We're sinful people. And I know it's because of the fall, but I, I want us to think a bit deeper for a moment. Why did we as humanity in the middle of paradise in the middle of God's presence, in full relationship with God, turn away and eat forbidden fruit? Why did we, even when we were liberated and walked through red seas that parted before us and we were adopted into relationship, full relationship with God, and he dwells among us, why do we so quickly turn to golden calves? Because yes, this is the, this is the story of Israel, but I think it's the story of humanity. We are completely faithless. And it is, yes, because of sin. But what does sin do to us? What is it about sin that makes us turn away? How does it corrupt what was whole and beautiful, twisting it until we just want to eat from forbidden trees? The book of Malachi speaks to faithlessness of Israel, but I think it does more than that. It exposes that since the beginning of time, at the roots of corruption, the heart of faithlessness, and, like, and this heart of faithlessness, is a misunderstanding of who God is in the first place. 
when Israel, all those years ago, allowed misunderstandings and misconceptions cloud their eyes to the reality of who God is, it made faithlessness logical and idolatry reasonable. Throughout their history, the people of God thought they knew who Yahweh was. They thought they knew who he was when they rejected him in the garden, in the wilderness, in the promised land, in exile, and in the rubble of Jerusalem that they stand in now. But really, they were just rejecting who they thought God was. They never knew him. We say that idolatry was burnt in the hearts of Israel when they went to those flames of exile. But really... Idolatry is just worshiping images made of human, man, human minds and human hands. The people of Malachi are still drunken on idolatry. With, con, with, with misconceptions of God clouding their eyes, they sit in the ruins of their hopes for Jerusalem, for this Messiah, for these blessings to finally come that they waited so long to receive. There's a reason that the, Bible, that the Old Testament didn't just stop at Zechariah. There's a reason that it didn't just stop at the glory, you know, and, 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 and the Messiah coming back, and oh my goodness, it's all going to come. There's a reason that we get this super random, short little book that's super abrupt, very confrontational at the end of the Old Testament. These four chapters, there's something that God does in them. And actually, we call, we call it the 400 years of silence, but I'd actually argue that for the people of Malachi, they've seen themselves in already 100 years of silence. They've waited, they've seen Zerubbabel and Joshua, people that, that were promised to be God's men, you know, uh, God's men to usher in the future. They see them die. They see uh, just re- religious ways continuing again and again and again and nothing changing. And they raise their hands for a while, but what we realize is that in the silence and in the waiting, arms can get pretty tired. <laughs> we realize that, that, that when there's the pressure of life that comes into, into things, it's so much easier, and it's, it, we, we need to answer our questions. I can't just lift my voice and, and, and leave this question up there forever and not get an answer. So what the book of Malachi does is it answers the heart cries of people. It answers uh, people that, out of um, not getting the answers, out of crushed expectations, they wait, and they waited and waited, and now by this point, they're done, right? they're done waiting. They're done. This is just something that helps, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice ritual, but it's nothing more than that. So that is essentially what the book of Malachi is about. And it's about this faithlessness being ultimately that we don't see God because we've allowed our eyes to be clouded with misconceptions. So the heart of Malachi is to rip away those misconceptions so we can truly see who God is again. And what I, my heart for us today is that we would truly see God. I know that, that we've spent all these months going through the Old Testament, but so do these people. They memorize these words. But what is it, what's the difference between seeing it on paper and putting him in, in, in frames that we can understand and truly, letting, truly allowing himself to stand in our presence? The Messiah is coming really soon, and this book is, 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 a, is important because it helps the people get ready to recognize who he's going to be. And my prayer for us is that we would be able to recognize him too, that we'd allow the misconceptions that we might have had about God that have led us to, to disappointment that he hasn't shown up yet, fall. So with that, I'm going to get into the BRI. Okay, so put your hands in front of you. All of you, all right? All right, okay, good. Now, these are all of your expectations for this BRI. 
all, all of the answers that are going to be perfect. Now, oh, whoa, look, look. They, they are becoming helium balloons, and they are floating out of your hands and out the window. Wow. We, we don't need those. We realize that often beer eyes, you guys have gotten to this point so far, we know very much. Not really. I mean, we can, we can get probabilities, and sometimes these probabilities are super strong, but ultimately, we have to let go of the idea of knowing everything for certain and just trust that God is sovereign. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, with that, let's get into... Um, oh, hello. Oh. Okay. All right. Let's get into the actual beer eye. So... In 1.1, it explains it's an oracle, the word of the Lord to Malachi. Okay? But who is Malachi? Now, I wanted to figure out more about who he was, so I figured out that actually he posts a lot of pictures of himself on the internet. So I wanted to see, like, I don't know, what what did he look like? So I found, these are some of my favorites. The contemplative Malachi. Okay? This is the um, kind of disturbed and confused Malachi. (laughs) This is Malachi with all the awe and wonder, just like how his eyes are so big. And this one, actually, I think this one's my favorite, though. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I love that one. I love it. You guys can keep that. I'll send it out to you guys after, just so you can have a little ammunition with you. Ah. <laughs> ah, it's beautiful. You can just appreciate it for a little bit. But yeah, so in all seriousness, though, who is Malachi? It's, scholars really have absolutely no idea. Uh, the, he doesn't really say anything about himself except for his name. And it seems like, actually, in his eyes, that's all that the audience really needs to know. So, his name in one one, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And Malachi is actually a very strange Hebrew name. It's not like very many others that we know. And it actually means my messenger in Hebrew. And because that it's such a strange name, uh, people in the scholar, scholarly world actually question, was it actually a real name, or was this just kind of the, the, the kind of, I don't know, the, yeah, <laughs> what you said, yeah, just like kind of a, just a name for, for an anonymous author. But um, what, we've just, what a lot of scholars have come to, though, is that because there's not very much evidence, well, there really is no evidence to, to suggest that actually it is a uh, make-believe name, they are, the, the weight of Jewish tradition, which is that he's an actual person, kind of is, is heavy enough that we decide that because it's, because it's Jewish tradition and because there's nothing else that really is standing as an argument against it, we can come to the conclusion that Malachi probably was a real person. But his name as well is really significant. Uh, messengers, my messenger. Um, messengers throughout ancient history, they had specific roles. Do you know what they were? Yes! <laughs> Doug, well, well done, well done. Sending news, yes. They actually, they carried the news. But also what they did is they actually went ahead of their lord or master and made the way for them to come. They prepared everything ahead of them. So this book is actually the messenger that prepares the way for the lord, which is pretty cool. Um, so other than his name, we don't know very much about him except from what is reflected in his writings. We can see that he had a really strong interest with the temple, sacrificial work, worship, and the priesthood. And because this book is written uh, from the perspective of an outsider looking in, we can have an idea that he probably wasn't a priest, but he actually was an outsider from the system that still lived in Jerusalem and was, lo- was looking in on this system. Um, yeah, yeah. So... Other than that, though, we can understand that 
he definitely had the heart of God, that where the people were questioning, where is God? Do you love us? Or actually so jaded to this point, they don't really even care anymore. Uh, Israel, uh, Malachi is a true worshiper of God. He knows God's heart. He knows that God loves them, and he is fighting for that. All right, so Malachi is actually written very uniquely. Uh, if you've noticed how it's written, there's an argument after argument after argument. So it's very confrontational, very forceful, and that is really significant. Why? Is because uh, there really is no frills. Not, um, n- n- yeah, there, there's no frills around his writing. There's nothing that is um, suggesting that you know, it, was, it was really put together well. It sounds as though literally how it was spoken was how it was written. And because of the, because of the writing and the speaking are so... It seems like it was written how it was spoken. It suggests that the writing and speaking date are really close together. And so because of that, we can understand that the OA and the OR are the same person. Does that make sense? So it's because it's spoken so directly, it means that it probably was written very similar to the speaking date, which means the OA and the OR are the same. So if you write that in your BRIs as having the OA and the OR as the same person, just make sure to have an argument, argument for it. And if you agree with me, then write that argument, okay? All right, so we know that you know, the spoken and written people were probably the same, um, but let's talk about dating. I think so. Yes, okay, so we don't know very much about it. There, there's, no, there's nothing at the start of the prophecy saying uh, this was written during so-and-so's reign. It really doesn't say anything at all, but we do get a few clues within the, um, within the book that, talk, that, that, we can get, uh, that we can gather a little bit more about what the dating was. So as you can see up here, uh, in 1.8, we hear that, that um, the word used for governor is actually a Persian word. And specifically, uh, if they use this Persian word for governor, they probably, Malachi was probably referring to a foreign gover- governor. It wouldn't have been uh, Nehemiah. Okay? So we know two things from that. We know it was during the Persian Empire, not before. And we also know that it wasn't during the time of Malachi. So the Persian Empire, we know, was from... Um, 539 was when it really rose, all the way until 331 BC. So that's kind of our time range generally, but we're going to get more specific. We know as well that the temple is standing and the sacrificial system is well established. So it needs to be post uh, 516 because of that. And also, um, it's understood with scholars that because that the people at this point have gotten kind of bored with worship, um, they want to give us a kind of a buffer room here of um, it probably was 50 years after the temple was built because of the way that people seem bored with worship. So that would be 466 is the earliest date. And then we can also see uh, from uh, within the text, we can understand that they had a problem with marrying foreigners. And what we also understand from uh, Jewish records is that the people um, after Malachi's time they had no more issues with marrying foreigners. Like by the time that Malachi's, not Malachi, Nehemiah's influence was over, they had no problem anymore. That actually they were very removed from the pagan or Gentile world uh, by the end of that. So taking into account kind of his influence time, we're thinking maybe um, at least by 400, uh, the people really wouldn't have had a problem with, with marrying foreigners anymore. Okay, just from the Jewish records that we know. So it would be between... 466 and 400, but let's get a little bit more specific. Oh, also, these dates between 466 and 400 are confirmed by, um, by Jewish, uh, Jew- Jewish tradition as well, and also most scholars in this, in this world fall within that range, at least most conservative scholars. Liberals, we can talk about. 
And <laughs> yeah, all right, so then because of that, within that date range, we have two more options uh, within that date range that most people fall in. There's an earlier date and a later date. The first date, uh, the first option, you probably read it in the BRI books, is called the, is, uh, is called the pre-Ezra decline. So it's right before, when things got really, really bad before Ezra came, that's when this was happening. So that's one of the dates. And the reason why is because that uh, the issues covered are really similar to Ezra and Nehemiah, and also because it's clear that there's really no reform visible in the people. So it suggests that, well, if there's no reform visible in the people, it must have been uh, before any reforms occurred. Okay? And then the second one, I'm going to call Nehemiah's sabbatical. And so, oh yes, let me just, for the first one though, this is when the first date, this is our first option. Option one. And then our second one, um, because that the, that the, uh, the things that are talked about in, um, in, in the book of Nehemiah, not in the, nah, in the book of Malachi, are very similar to that that's spoken about in Nehemiah. Uh, we can understand that it probably was. It, it would make sense if it was if if the um, if the book was written closer to the time of Nehemiah than of Ezra. So there's some things that are similar to Ezra, but it seems closer to Nehemiah. But because that the word for governor used is a Persian one, we can understand that while it's close to the time of Nehemiah, it wasn't during his time. So most scholars that fall into this view say that it must have been in this little slot between the time that uh, Nehemiah finished being governor in 432 and by the time he returned. And we don't know when exactly he returned, but a safe date that some people including myself, <laughs> fall into by, by the time that uh, he could have come back would have been around 415. So the second option is it happened between here. So option two. Okay, so you got two options. Option one, 460, pre-Ezra decline. And option two, I'm calling uh, Nehemiah's sabbatical. And it was uh, when he was away and he was going to come back. Okay. And for this teaching, I'm actually going to be teaching from the later uh, option, option two. And the reason is because that when I was reading uh, Ezra and Nehemiah over again, it, um, the, the way that the people in the book of Malachi speak of the word of the, like, of the law, it seems like they have a good understanding and a good grasp of it. Versus before Ezra came into the picture, the people seemed like they really didn't know very much of the law. Um, hence, when Nehemiah in Nehemiah 8 reads the law, they're weeping. And also, too, before the reforms, the people really didn't know very much of the festivals. So because of, there seems to be a lack of understanding in the people uh, before Ezra and Nehemiah's time, this seems really contrasting to the time of Malachi, where the people seem to get it by this point. And they not only get the law, but they, have, they, they see it as irrelevant now. So it, does that make sense? That is the reason why I'm going to be going with a later date. It's just because the people seem to have an understanding, of, an understanding of the law by now, and during the time of Ezra, they wouldn't have had that same understanding. So, does anyone have any questions with that? Oh, sorry. Uh, what was the argument for before? Pre-Ezra decline. Yeah, so because in the text it looks like the people really don't have any uh, reform in them, like it looks like they're really unreformed. Uh, scholars have come to the conclusion that uh, they're unreformed and so therefore they must have not received any reforms yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But I meant, I meant in relation to the whole governor thing. In relation why, to the governor thing? The, what, the, what do you the, mean? The word, the 
Persian word. Oh, you said that why it is it before? To do with, it's either before or after. Does that not have anything to do? Um, no. Oh, uh, did you mean... Um, okay, during the ministry of Nehemiah, uh, it's very similar, like the, the issues that are covered in Nehemiah are very similar to that of Malachi, but we understand from that word governor, and per, like that Persian word for governor, that during the time of Malachi, that governor was a foreign governor. It couldn't have been Nehemiah. Okay, so then that means that it couldn't have been during his time. It would have actually been probably after, but really good question. Yes. Yeah. Are, are we going to talk, I think you already said this, but are we going to talk about a different time? Just to have a different the thing is, is I, um, I would be curious about if there would be a different time. No one really has come up with that, just because that the word for, like, it's, since it's a Persian word for governor, uh, it seems pretty clear that it was during a time where the Persians were ruling. So roughly, it would have to have been between 539 and 331, which is the time of the Persian Empire. Um, does that make sense? And then because it's really clear that the temple has been established, so it has to be after 516. Is that, yeah? Yes, yes. There you go. Okay, so now, because that we're going to go with this date, at least I'm going to go with it, disagree with me if you want, I encourage that, that'd be great. Um, but I'm going to be speaking as if it is uh, 432 to 415 BC. But how does that change the way that we look at this book now? Wait, ah, there we go. Peace. Okay. Uh, how does it how does it change that we the way that we look at the book? Well, I mean, as you probably write in your impact section every single time, it would change the people that it's written to. It would change their struggles. It would change the way that they would see the text. But how exactly would it have changed it? How would they have seen Malachi's words differently? So the people that this is written to, if it's written in this time frame, are the products of hundreds of years of history of a faithful God to a faithless people. But more specifically, they are the children of those rare, wild, and faith-filled people that had, the, that had their hearts stirred and left everything uh, to come back to Jerusalem, to this war-torn country that was Israel. They are the children and they are the people that were the 2% that, uh, that, God sir, that God stirred to come back with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But what made them take this leap of faith? Was it hope? Was it duty? Desperation? What were they looking for when they first came back to this rebel? We want to really think like them. They came back here with a hope or something. I mean, think about yourselves. What brought you to leave everything uh, to come to this, you know, to this rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and to study the Word of God. These people probably had similar hopes and dreams as we did, this hope for restoration, this hope for something more that they weren't finding in Persia and they knew was with God in the rubble of Jerusalem. So these children, these, these children and grandchildren of, of those that went into exile, they would have clung to these prophecies of restoration, and we know that. But when they first came back, they realized that those prophecies of a new Jerusalem don't actually happen pretty quickly. Actually, in fact, what they experience is persecution, fear, and poverty. They're not experiencing blessings. They're not experiencing the Messiah. And instead, they're experiencing a lot of trials. Where is God in those trials? So in the middle of those trials, they raise their hands and their questions to God. And they ask you know, it, was it worth coming back? Is God with us? 
is following God worth it? And they waited. They waited for the presence to return, and it, does, it never returns. They waited for the Messiah to come back. They waited for New Jerusalem, but none of that ever happened. They waited and they waited and watched Zerubbabel and Joshua, the prophets that, uh, the, the, the people that the prophets had indicated were God's chosen men. Uh, they watched them die, and they watched just their religious duties continue on. So they lift their arms high. As we talked about earlier, we realized that we can't raise our arms forever. We realize after a while that arms get tired. We realize as well that questions under the pressure of persecution, trials, and just life can often not be, when they're not answered, we need to answer them ourselves. We get to a place of panic. And so in the silence where they haven't experienced God, they start answering their questions for themselves. No, it wasn't worth it coming back. No, God isn't with us. And no, it's not, uh, it's not worth it to follow God in the first place. And so like so many of their ancestors, the, heart, uh, the people, the hearts of the people, they started to turn cold. They started to turn hard uh, because they believed ultimately at the heart of it all that God had disappointed them, that he's failed them by this point in, in their history. So the OR and the OAR Malachi are those that sit, sit on the shattered expectations of what they thought God would do. They were those that let disappointment and bitterness shape their understanding and how they saw God. But this apathy and this bitterness of the people, it masquerades in the robes of priests. It dresses as a faithful remnant trying to reestablish the kingdom of God. Because they're still doing things. They're still practicing these rituals. They haven't abandoned it. Yet under the layers of this bitterness, uh, there are these, um, yeah, under under the layers of the bitterness uh, that answered the questions that they would have had. Yeah. Because does that make sense that there's this idea that because of this bitterness that they have, they have this this expectation and it's turned to nothing. And now they're answering their questions for themselves and they become bitter. And so these people ultimately, because they've seen God as failing them, that God's not here, they have no fear of the Lord. They see God as someone that's failed them, who's distant, apathetic, hateful, uh, and that honestly that his justice is perverted, blind, broken, and that it's just not powerful or worth taking seriously. And as a result of their corruptive beliefs about God, they are just like their ancestors and judges. And they do what is right in their own eyes by now. There is great pride, selfishness, and indifference among the people. And under all that, there's a disappointment that this was all useless and meaningless. Israel now, by this point, doesn't worship God with a true heart. They've become corrupt in the silence, and they've allowed disappointment, disillusionment, and apathy to cloud their eyes. And with these final words of the Old Testament, Malachi cuts straight to these roots of their disappointments from generations that have not seen God, and they've, they've thought he's failed them. But God has never failed them. I mean, you've read the whole Old Testament, right? These past six months, is, is God ever unfaithful? No, he never was. But somehow these people, Israel, this 2% has, has finally decided that, you know, they've, they've developed this false idea of God. Now they worship him with their tongues, but deep down they really don't believe that God is good. And God uses Malachi to point this out. Disappointments come from misconceptions, lies that cover our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, and taint the image of God that we see and our understanding of who God is. The only way to see God truly is when we don't have misconceptions covering our eyes. But when our eyes are clouded with lies and false beliefs, uh, we allow and, and we have false expectations of God because of that. When we can't see God, we see God differently. We have different expectations for him. 
And as a result, when our experiences, when they aren't what we're expecting, um, and we're met with, we instead have disappointment. And in that disappointment, bitterness and apathy bloom. And, ever, and every experience that God's, ha- God's people have now uh, confirms this, the, the tragedies and the disappointments they've had in the past. So I was talking to someone in the counseling school, and they said that people's beliefs are made because of their experiences. So experience is over here. No, wait, hold on. Belief is over here. And this is, this is experience. Okay, so both of these confirm each other. When I have a belief, I experience something and it confirms that belief. And when I experience, uh, and it just keeps on going and going. And if the beliefs that we have are uh, lies, then our experiences still can confirm those beliefs. So if the people believe that God isn't with them, everything around them can continue to confirm that. And so the book of Malachi, actually the point of it, is that Malachi wants to address these beliefs right here. There's actually something that I was learning about last week with counseling, where uh, to challenge someone to get out of cycles of disappointment and bitterness and apathy that they have, you need to challenge the belief that lies at the very bottom. So Malachi is challenging these beliefs through six disputations, which is the structure of the book. So a disputation is where God will present a truth, the people will question it, and then God will state actually what is the truth. They've thought, they've had this false belief, but God will say, this is actually what it is, so you're wrong. You are wrong, I, this is actually the truth and the reality here. So the book of Malachi, we cut straight to the, we cut straight to the roots, and the whole goal is to rip out these beliefs, because when we rip out these beliefs and we replace them with the reality of who God is, that he's faithful, then it changes everything, and that we can experience and we can see God for who he is. Okay, so with that, um, I am actually, we're going to do an activity now, because I'm going to need your help to figure out these disputations. Uh, we're going to divide into six groups, and what's going to happen is that we are going to figure out each disputation together. Uh, so I want to see, how many people do we have? 19? I guess like groups of three, four? Groups of, yeah, groups of three and then one group of four, right? Am I doing math? Yes. Okay, um, do you just want to turn to your table? Say yeah, yeah? Just, how about you just turn to, just collect yourselves, clump. <laughs> make, make a group of three. Okay, all right, so what we have is we have, oh, come on now. We have six disputes. And these are what they look like. Because you guys have already done your horizontal, right? We're finished horizontals by this point. So there's, there's six disputes. And each group, we're actually going to get, how about let's get, you guys are going to be the first dispute. Wait, can we just have, this is, this is going to be group one. Group two. Group three. Okay. Group four. Group five. And group six. Okay, so this is going to be the dispute that you guys have. So make sure that you write it down, okay? All right, and so with each dispute, do we have, guys, do you guys have them? Can I switch slides? You got it? You have your dispute? And you guys know what? Perfect. Okay, all right, so what you're going to do is you're going to identify each of the three parts of each dispute, okay? 
So you're going to include what is God's truth at the beginning of of the dispute. And then what you're going to do is you're going to identify what is the question that God's people have. And sometimes, actually, there's a few truths and a few questions that the people have. But I want you to identify both of those. So each time it's a God's truth, and then you put a verse reference, and then the people's question, then you put a verse reference. And then finally, there's actually a part where God responds to it, where he responds to their questions at the end, and I want you to identify that as well and maybe briefly say what that response is, okay? So that's the first part. And when you guys end up identifying it, I'm going to tell you guys which box to put that in, okay? Because we're going to create a structure up here. And then also what you're going to do is that you are going to... um, you're going to sit with the people in their sandals, okay? So you're going to, you're going to ask this question after, after you've, you've identified these parts, is you're going to ask, uh, why would the people respond like this, and what does it reveal about how they see God, okay? Because we want to, the whole goal of this part is we want to see what were the beliefs and the lies that people have, okay? Because every single time in these, in these disputes, God reveals their beliefs and then shows them the reality of them, okay? So you're going to ask that question, and the second question that you're going to ask is, how does God's response challenge the people to process through their misconceptions. What is the truth that God has for them, and how is he telling them to rip it out? Okay? If that doesn't make sense. So it's like if... Yeah, does, does that kind of make sense? Just, just, just try. Just try a little bit, and we'll see what happens. And also, too, uh, try to label and interpret... If you, if you see a difficult passage, because there's a few in there, and I might come to the groups that do have them, if you see one, uh, take some time and actually see if you can figure out what is... like. Figure out how to interpret that. You guys know the word of God. You know his character. Uh, the worst case scenario is that we stone you. It's joking. We only do it with Stephen, actually. That's the only person that we do that with. It's biblical, right? Because you get stoned. And then, but other than that, you mean like the worst case scenario is that I correct you, and the worst case scenario if I get it wrong is someone corrects me, Jesse corrects me. So it's okay. So just try to see if there's a difficult passage, something that makes you go, huh, see if you can interpret that, Okay. So I'm going to give you some time. I'll let you know how much soon, Um, but probably around 10 minutes to go through that, okay? All right.